This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hey, it's Erica. Today, I'm excited to provide you with a special bonus episode about healthcare consolidation. This is an episode from our other podcast, Healthcare Blame Game. And if you are not already a subscriber, now is the time because we've got some big stuff going on for 2024. So go to your favorite podcast app, search for Healthcare Blame Game, subscribe, you know what to do. In the meantime, enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Healthcare Blame Game from the Healthcare Financial Management Association. I'm Erica Grotto, a senior editor at HFMA. And I'm Brett Dennison, director of content for HFMA. We have a great interview to share today on the topic of hospital consolidation. But first, Brad, you've got something of a follow-up on a previous Blame Game topic. Loosely, anyway. Listeners might remember in our first episode, we talked about a KFF Health News study of hospital collection policies. We recently received a press release from the Loan Institute where it announced receiving $1.5 million in funding for two projects, including one related to collection policies. This is from the release, quote, the second project will study the financial assistance, billing, and collection policies of hospitals. The Institute will create a national database that documents the policies of thousands of U.S. hospitals, including the extent to which they will deny care, pursue legal action, and send patients to collections agencies, end quote. So this is exactly what KFF did a year ago. Their database was incomplete, but had the same information on more than 500 hospitals. Frankly, the KFF information seemed very good to me, and they even made an effort to note how practices lined up with policies when spokespeople noted it. I did think KFF mischaracterized how business policy is enforced in the real world, and I think they missed a story about a large number of hospitals and health systems who have ditched extraordinary collections actions. But again, the database is good. It's still out there, and I imagine it was a heavy lift for their team, which spent months putting it together. But I bet it didn't cost $1.5 million, and I have a lot less faith in loans approach and eventual commentary that will accompany it since they've had a decidedly anti-hospital view of late. I would just remind the folks at the Loan Institute that policy and practice are not one and the same. So making blanket statements about what a hospital does or will do based on collections policies is likely inaccurate. It'll be interesting to see what that database looks like and what conclusions they draw from the information they collect. I'm sure we will be talking about it when the time comes. But for now, let's get to our discussion about hospital consolidation. It's talked about in the media. It's talked about in government. There have been some recent Senate hearings on the topic. What's the typical narrative there, Brad? 
Yeah, well, it's written about in all industries, and it's often looked at through a slightly negatively biased lens. I spent several years in acquisitions and divestitures, and the idea that bigger isn't better, better is better, is true, but they're not mutually exclusive concepts. Mergers happen to solve various business problems, especially in an industry with extremely low margins like healthcare. So New York Times headlines about corporate giants gobbling up primary care practices and the evils of private equity and generally poor outcomes and generally more money for rich people when patients suffer. These are the concepts that come out of consolidation stories. But in a very fragmented industry like healthcare, Bigger actually has the potential to be a solution for solving patient-centric issues at scale. Susan Denser wrote about this in her October HFM Magazine column, which really caught my attention. Susan is president and CEO of America's Physician Groups and a frequent speaker and commentator in the media, including NPR, PBS, Modern Healthcare, and others. Susan is a regular columnist for HFM Magazine, HFMA's peer-reviewed journal, which I oversee as executive editor. So let's go to the interview. My first question is in your column, you mentioned the comparison of healthcare consolidation to the Robert Barron era of business and industry. You point to a New York Times headline, corporate giants buy up primary care practices at a rapid pace and point to a few other grabby phrases like private equity takeovers or harming patients and hospital consolidation continues to boost costs, narrow access and impact care quality. Why do so many industry observers, and actually this happens in any industry, immediately gravitate to the bigger is worse narrative? Well, I think big is bad or big is worse is an old trope in human affairs and particularly U.S. affairs. The sort of myth that small is beautiful because you think about it. We love family farms. We hate corporate farming. We like the retail shops on Main Street. We hate Amazon and Walmart. There probably isn't a politician in the country who hasn't extolled the virtues of small business. Although when you think about it, the true hallmark of success for a small business would be that it becomes a big business. <laughs> isn't that the case? So we get caught up in this over and over again. And I think it's now just taking root once more in healthcare. This is not to say that big is always by definition de facto better, right? But it is also by definition and not de facto bad. And as we look at the trends around us, consolidation of healthcare, the entrance of many non-healthcare players into healthcare, it's change, it makes people nervous, and it's easy to fall back on the tropes. You know, big is going to be bad, or it's going to be worse for us, or it's going to harm patients. As we've discussed before, I've been around M&A for a long time. I've done it in media for 15 years, been involved in buying and selling companies. And I had a colleague who used to say, bigger isn't better, better is better. They're not mutually exclusive concepts. Typically not. And look, if we look back through corporate history, we can all name multiple mergers that well, cratered, right, where people got up and proclaimed synergies that never occurred. Um, magic did not come out the end of the pipeline. So it's not to say that all mergers and acquisitions, that it's all good. We know it's not. However, it's not bad just because it happens, and it's not bad just because something bigger buys something smaller. 
it is to a certain degree the normal evolution of capitalism. We have members at APG that started off as private equity investments and either succeeded enough or didn't quite succeed enough that they were bought by public companies who are in a better position to take them bigger and stick with it longer, perhaps, than some of the original private equity investors were. But that's the dynamism and evolution of capitalism and sort of getting apoplectic about it because there are corporate giants who come in. You know, in theory, that's the way our system, like it or not, has worked for many, many decades. And now it's playing out in healthcare. And I guess some people are shocked about it. Along those lines, you point in your column to American Medical Association data that says the number of physicians working in private practices has dropped about 13% in the past 10 years. The main reason they point to for this is the need for higher negotiated rates. So to be fair, to ask this question, healthcare isn't getting any cheaper and is consolidation contributing? Well, of course, it's hard to parse out what what's the chicken and what's the egg in this process. But let's just take that statement. We need higher negotiated rates at face value. Why do private practices say they need that? A, because we know that government payment, particularly Medicare, Medicaid, has been suppressed for quite some time. And they need higher negotiated rates from commercial payers. Why? Because they need more money to stay in business. If you look at the degree of investment that private practices have to make now to stay truly up to date, uh, sophisticated electronic health records, if you're going to play in value-based healthcare, you need to set up patient registries. You need to meet a whole set of expectations that were not required of private practices even 10 and 20 years ago. And then on top of that, practice expenses are rising. Staffing shortages are the order of the day. You need to put together a team if you're a private practice and you want to play in value-based care. You need to have relationships with behavioral health specialists. You possibly need to hire more nurse practitioners and other so-called non-physician providers onto your team. How do you do that? You need money, and that's why they need higher negotiated rates, and that's why many of them are selling out, because not only do they need money, they often need expertise that they don't have to do the things that are now required of them. All the things that you're describing are the things that come with scale. Exactly right. So in the column, you also point to four areas that you say are worth a closer look when you're considering the idea that bigger is worse. And and to me, this was the heart of your commentary. So let's just, we'll talk about, unpack these one at a time. But the first one was the practicality of independent ownership versus health system ownership. Yeah, and exactly. We've just talked about that in the context of, say, physician practices. But the same, similar dynamics apply in the case of hospitals. If you're a standalone hospital in this day and age, how do you survive? Again, the heaps of expectations, important expectations that are now levied on hospitals. We know how much rural hospitals are struggling to keep their heads above water, and many of them haven't. Many of them have, have had to close or they've consolidated. And this often, despite the fact that we've created revenue structures to prop them up uh, in critical access hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. And even with that, they have difficulty surviving. So what alternative do they have besides closing up the doors in some instances, but to consolidate? 
and at least spread some fixed costs across a broader group of entities. So that seems in a way kind of like a no-brainer. And then for other health systems, particularly, we know that there are parts of the country that are tremendously overbedded still to this day when it comes to hospitals and acute care. And as we know, a lot of care is moving outside of hospitals. Well, how do you restructure? Uh, you take organizations nowadays that are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on building new ambulatory facilities. If they're lucky, they're big enough that they can debt finance. Well, not everybody can debt finance if they're not big enough to do that. So the forces that are driving these kinds of combinations now are very, very pronounced. And I don't think we should attack the end product of all of this consolidation without understanding the importance of the impact of those forces. Absolutely. So your second point on the list was the need for payer provider alignment. This was a big one. Absolutely. And if you think about value-based care, and again, my organization exists to live in and spread a value-based healthcare payment arrangements, that in and of itself is total payer and provider alignment around where the money is going and what the expectations are about what the money will achieve in terms of outcomes for patients, whether those are uh, patient reported outcomes or process measures that are indicators of quality. It's we agree to pay for a certain amount of stuff to be done and we agree that there will be outcomes achieved by that. And if that doesn't work, we don't have a deal, right? That's the whole theory behind value-based care. That means payers and providers have to be on the same page. Now, can they get on the same page through various arrangements, contractual and otherwise? Yes. Can they get to even tighter arrangements than that? Yes. A number of our groups are in delegated relationships with, for example, Medicare Advantage plans, where they're taking on the full, almost the full risk of caring for Medicare Advantage enrollees. That means they have complete alignment over not just what money is coming in, but where the money's going to go and what the expectations are. And they have a lot of freedom to do what healthcare practices can do to meet those objectives. So as we take it even a step further and have, as we're having now, a lot of vertical integration take place where the payers are either buying providers or starting up their own new provider entities, do we need guardrails around that to make sure that bad things don't happen? Of course we do, like almost every aspect of business. But in principle, would we stand back and say this is a bad thing that providers and payers are getting together to agree? For example, we're going to serve uh, the older adult population. We're going to keep them as healthy as possible and out of the hospital. And we're not going to play games because it's in one party's interest to reduce spending and another party's interest to gin up volume, right? That's not what we want. So if we achieve this alignment in part by ownership structures, again, provided we can protect against really anti-competitive actions or other things that we don't want, we could get to a better situation in terms of value through these kinds of arrangements than we might otherwise. Yep. And so your third area here, geographic boundaries around specific healthcare markets. Talk talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think, again, if you look at trends, right, we see more and more provision of telehealth, which is, of course, care being provided across conventional geographic boundaries in many instances. 
we see many organizations, uh, employer purchasers, trying to form relationships with so-called centers of excellence. Uh, Walmart's been a specialist in this vein, taking a whole share of of an employee population and saying, if you're willing to go over here to the Cleveland Clinic and get your joint replacement, uh, not only will we get a better deal out of it, we'll get a higher degree of certainty that you actually needed the joint replacement. Keep in mind that in the case of that arrangement between Walmart and Cleveland Clinic and other employer purchasers, one of the reasons they saved so much money is that when people arrived at the Cleveland Clinic, they said, these people don't need surgeries, they should go home. So if we have more and more of those kinds of, again, value-based relationships struck across geographic boundaries and more and more telehealth, it may not be the case today that geographic boundaries and localization doesn't matter, but it's going to change over time. So getting obsessed about what payment rates are within local areas is going to be not quite as important an indicator anymore of whether anti-competitive practices are driving up prices. And speaking of pricing, your final point here to take a closer look at was the long-term viability of traditional pricing in response to declining Medicare payment. Pricing is, is an area that's very misunderstood. Absolutely. And as we have more and more penetration of government programs into healthcare uh, by virtue of the growth that is going to occur in future years, already is occurring and will continue to occur in, for example, Medicare and Medicaid. We know from the most recent Medicare trustees report that the trustees of the program, and mind you, this is the Secretary of HHS, the Secretary of Labor, the Secretary of the Treasury, they basically said the long-term projections in the trustees report are not to be taken all that seriously, they said, because they are predicated on expectations that physician payment will fall to levels that are so low, we cannot guarantee that there will be enough providers who are willing to take care of Medicare patients. That's what they said. Now, what point does that happen, that payment is falling so low that providers don't take on Medicare patients? We'll see, right? But they said that that's in prospect. If we don't get serious about, frankly, the revenues it's going to take to support the Medicare program over the longer haul, that means by definition that what has happened in recent years, which is that commercial payment is stepping in to fill the gap between really low government payment or relatively lower government payment and the cost of doing business, that commercial payment is probably gonna continue to go up. What's the point at which everybody paying for that says, we can't go any further? We don't know the answer to that question either, but what it does tell you is commercial payment is probably gonna continue to rise. So using commercial prices as the index for true anti-competitive tactics uh, going on, which is traditionally the way we have measured consumer welfare in healthcare. We look at prices and we say, oh my goodness, this, this horizontal acquisition took place, prices are going up, therefore it's anti-competitive, it's bad. How are we gonna decide in the future that prices are going up because of anti-competitive forces versus prices are going up because the commercial sector is stepping in to keep the whole sector alive? 
I don't know that we're smart enough to make those assessments and decisions. So again, I think these are all indicators of the fact that we've got to go back and re-examine our assumptions about how the way the world works, because it might have been that the world worked that way in the past, but is not going to work that way in the future. I think one of the things that we see in media a lot these days is the measurement is revenue. It's not really in a mature business, a measurement of much of the things that they're comparing it against as opposed to margin. I think when you take some of the same comparisons against margin, it tells a lot different story. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. When, you, when you're talking about pricing, you're talking about staying afloat, right? And you know, keeping at least moderately positive. Right, exactly. And and as we know, healthcare margins overall are lower than in a lot of industries. Sometimes, of course, you do make it up on volume. You could have a, a low-ish sounding margin, but if you're treating, say, millions of Medicare patients, right, you can make a go of it. But yeah, I think just a more sophisticated understanding of the finances of being in healthcare in this day and age and the very real challenges that organizations face. I mean, you take, for example, a lot of the private sector investments that have been made in primary care haven't panned out quite as well as they might have. And guess why? It's still really hard to make money in primary care, the way payment of primary care has been structured in this country. So just because you're a, a private equity investor doesn't mean you're going to take it to the bank. But making investments in important areas of healthcare that we want to grow and we want to get better and we want to have higher quality is frankly an important and noble activity. And I think that we should recognize that a lot of this effort to re-engineer healthcare is precisely that. And I guess fundamentally, it is really the end of the cottage industry that healthcare in America has been for so long. That era is gone and we're re-engineering the new era. It's almost impossible these days to be one of 6,000, right? Absolutely. And it's also impossible not to be really good and really smart at what you do. If you just think of what's coming now and the investments that the sector is going to have to make in artificial intelligence. So it's not 30 years behind the rest of the economy in taking advantage of AI, the way it was almost 30 years behind the rest of the economy in taking advantage of information technology. So we've got a lot to do to keep the sector healthy and thriving and frankly, meeting the expectations of the American people. And it's going to take money and capital to do that. When is the right time to really take a look at all of this consolidation and say, you know, this is working or this is not working? I think we have to start now. I think we have to start really evaluating what are the appropriate benchmarks to judge success? And what do we have now? A lot of nothing on, the, on one hand. We've got expressed concerns from, say, the... Uh, Federal Trade Commission about size, okay, and the classic concerns about consumer welfare, about pricing going up, et cetera. But is that it? Is that how we're going to judge the success or failure of big healthcare mergers? I don't think we can. I think we have to decide, okay, how are we going to collect data on outcomes for patients and other things that really matter? 
And it's not that they matter to the exclusion of things like pricing and competition, but they certainly matter as much as those things. So let's come up with some benchmarks that we're going to ask all the regulators and frankly, the media to start talking about in the context of analyzing the success of various business investments and other initiatives. And let's give this the serious holistic look that is needed by looking at a broad array of indicators that really collectively amount to the things that truly matter about healthcare. Well, Susan, thank you so much for the column and for spending some time with me today. We really appreciate it. It was a great pleasure. Thanks so much, Brad. Healthcare Blame Game is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association. Brad Dennison is the Director of Content. Erica Grotto is Executive Producer. Additional writing and research are done by Paul Barr and the HFMA Editorial Team, with support from the HFMA Policy Team and Rick Gundling, HFMA Senior Vice President of Professional Practice. Sound Engineering and Editing is by Linda Chandler. HFMA's President and CEO is Ann Jordan. I left my water somewhere.